Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. Each week, we navigate the most important changes that affect pharmacotherapy. Plus, you can even earn pharmacy and medicine CE credit. We know you're busy, so let us bring the learning to you. Click on Claim CE Credit in the show notes below. Now let's welcome our host, Jeff Wall, as he discusses this week's clinical practice game changer. Hello and welcome again to another episode of Game Changers Clinical Conversations. I'm your host, Jeff Wall, Professor of Pharmacy Practice at Drake University. Welcome. Welcome to the show. I hope wherever you are, things are going okay in your world. And thanks again for listening. If you are a new listener, uh, this is a podcast kind of dedicated to pharmacotherapy and other types of medical issues. And we try and give you guys the latest information that's evidence-based and hopefully stuff for hot off the press that you can actually uh, actionable and put in, into your practice where you work. And that's whether you're you're a provider, you're a pharmacist, anything along those lines. So uh, hopefully uh, you've listened before and you like us. And if you're, again, a new listener, welcome. Today, we are going to talk about something uh, for my ICU peeps. I think that's what the kids say nowadays, ICU peeps, <laughs> and talking about the uh, brand new surviving sepsis campaign guidelines, which just came out October 2nd. So they are literally hot off the press. This is a big deal for anyone who works in an ICU, which I do. You know, these surviving sepsis campaign guidelines really are the gold standard. They're the Bible, if you were, of the treatment of sepsis. And it's really what all sepsis treatment is, is, is pretty much based on is, is the sepsis campaign guidelines. It is worth noting that these guidelines have had their share of controversy. And I think one of the big reasons why a lot of major organizational guidelines have had changes as far as, you know, making the people who write the guidelines, you know, disclose what potential conflicts of interest they have, things along those lines, all kind of came from one of the iterations of the surviving sepsis campaign guidelines that recommended a drug called Zygris for the those older or more veteran ICU clinicians might remember Zygris and had recommended it based on very poor data. And then uh, after the fact, it was found that, that several of the people on that committee were actually either speakers or stockholders of, of that company. So uh, after that, there was a big cleaning of house and they've now been, I think, really bidding over backwards to make sure that they be as completely evidence-based as possible and that anyone who basically has a lot of ties to possible conflicts of interest are basically uh, not put on the guidelines. So like all guidelines nowadays, they have a a group of experts, mostly critical care clinicians that try to answer questions in a kind of a PICO format. So they ask specific questions when it comes to the screening and treatment of, of sepsis and septic shock. They then either give, give a suggestion, so it's kind of a low-level recommendation, or they recommend, which is a high-level recommendation for or against a, you know, a certain activity or a certain medication, things along those lines, and they give their evidence based on that. And sepsis hasn't gone away, though You know, sometimes I feel like in my ICU, uh, COVID is kind of squeeze sepsis out, we still absolutely see septic shock patients. And it's important to remember that even with all the neato technology we have and medications and things along those lines, that overall mortality for septic shock isn't really budged in, in the last 30 years. It stayed you know, pretty stubbornly at about 30 to 40%. And so people with septic shock, especially bad enough to be in the ICU, are in real trouble. And there are times we can turn them around and there are unfortunately times we can't. And, and these are the guidelines that we use to kind of do that. So rather than 
you know, give you guys, you know, the, the whole McGill because that would be like a three hour podcast. We're going to hit the highlights of, of talking about the differences between this and the last set of guidelines that came out in 2016. So again, it's been five years since the guidelines came out. And just to touch on some of the big, big differences between the previous set of guidelines and the current set of guidelines and kind of what I've read, I think, as far as the literature that kind of supports these recommendations. So one of the things that, that is a big change from previous guidelines is the screening for, for sepsis. Uh, we know that earlier treatment of sepsis and septic shock get better outcomes, and it just, that just stands to reason. And the last iteration of the guidelines had discussed something called the QSOFA score. The QSOFA score uh, was designed and based on the third international uh, consensus conference on the definitions of sepsis. Uh, and they, they tried to come up with a very simple predictor that could be done on the floor, could be done in the emergency department that could catch somebody in the early phases of sepsis. And it was recommended in, in previous sets of guidelines. These new guidelines actually now recommend against using uh, QSOFA because since the original uh, third international consensus study was published, several other studies have tried to corroborate uh, the usefulness of QSOFA as a, an early screening tool for sepsis and have actually found you know either negative uh, data or conflicting information. And so they feel rather than just using a simple screening tool that basically we really should be using some of the SERS criteria. So, you know, again, fever, high white count or low white count, tachycardia, tachypnea, using those things to kind of help us build a, a clinical case for sepsis. Of course, not all those things are caused by bacterial or, or fungal sepsis, but the fear is that we are going to overcall patients who um, are septic uh, if too many acute sulfur scores are positive. So they recommend it against that. And so that's a big change from previous sets of guidelines. Some other changes, uh, I think, uh, lean a little bit more into talking about the therapies associated with it. Some of the other changes, you know, things that have happened have not really changed. They, they're still recommending you using lactic acid or serum lactate to help monitor perfusion, which is what we've been doing for many, many years in, in ICUs. They do still recommend 30 mils per kilogram of crystalloid fluid as an initial bolus. So that's not different from, from what has been previously done. There has been some studies, interestingly, since then that suggest that certain patients, maybe we, after that bolus, we not give them a whole bunch of extra fluid that we kind of take a step back and see if they need fluid as needed. The problem in the ICU, of course, is that we give so many things by intravenous uh, infusion that uh, it's very, very easy to get patients fluid overloaded. And then of course they get into trouble with the respiratory status. You know, after the 30 mil per kilogram bolus is given, uh, some experts have suggested, you know, rather than just turning on a crystalloid solution and just letting it go for, for hours and hours, that you basically take a step back and say, okay, are they perfusing? Is their lactic acid going down? Are their MAPs consistently above 65? You know, if that's the case, maybe we don't need a whole lot of extra fluid in these patients that in the end, we're going to end up having just to diurese off on them if, if we can. So, so that is something that is discussed a little bit more in, in the guidelines. The target blood pressure hasn't changed. It's still 65, as they say. The admission to intensive care within six hours guideline hasn't changed. That's also pretty much stayed the same. The one thing that they've given a little bit stronger uh, recommendation to is the type of fluid. And even back in 2016, there were some hints that perhaps uh, using a balanced uh, crystalloid, such as lactated ringers or plasma light would result in better outcomes than the normal saline we've been using for 20 years previously. Since the 2016 guidelines have come out now, we've 
about even more evidence that suggests uh, not just in septic shock, but just about any other disease state where we give tons and tons of fluid to patients that balanced fluids such as lactated ringers are probably the way to go. It seems that they primarily decrease the risk of acute kidney injury. Uh, the reason for that, of course, is that uh, when you're giving tons of normal saline to patients, you're not only giving them a lot of sodium, but you're giving them a lot of chloride. And, and I think you know, we didn't realize when we first started giving all that fluid to patients that all that chloride was also going to trigger a non-ion gap metabolic acidosis, which can lead to kidney injury. And so now lactated ringers are ingested as the preferred fluid in the new surviving sepsis campaign guidelines. And I think that if you read the text, they're a little more specific about saying, yes, you know, there is data that says that's the way to go. They get a bit more specific when it comes to antibiotic selection. They don't actually call out drugs, but they do note that if patients are at high risk for methicillin-resistant staph aureus, especially in an area that has a high MRSA background rate, which almost every place in the United States does, that you should consider initial therapy with antibiotics that cover MRSA. Of course, in the United States, that's mostly vancomycin, and that's certainly reasonable. I think they don't discuss this in the guidelines very much, but I mean, our data at our own hospital and, and many, many other published studies have also suggest that MRSA nasal swab that's negative really has a fairly high negative predictive value to an MRSA infection during that hospitalization. So in my hospital, it's very common that, yes, we would do that. And they note that RCTs of nasal swabs are warranted, but I think most hospitals have really gone to using that as a screening tool to stop imperic vancomycin treatment because of the high negative predictive value that they have. They do discuss that if you're in a past patient with septic shock at high risk for multi-drug resistant gram-negative organisms, uh, they do suggest using two antimicrobials for gram-negative coverage. This is a weak recommendation with a low-level quality of evidence and really kind of gets, gets us back into the whole double coverage for gram-negative sort of thing. They do know that if the patient doesn't have a high risk of multidrug-resistant organisms, that you don't need to do this. But many places in the United States um, are seeing rising level of, of ESBL producers, of CRE producers. And so the guidelines would say that it's suggested that you might want to consider initial upfront coverage with two gram-negatives in, in those patients. Fortunately, if you can get the causative agent done and our ability to do that now with uh, PCR technology like BioFires is much better than it used to be, hopefully you can rapidly de-escalate back down to a, to a single agent. So that's, you know, that that's kind of leaned back a little bit more toward the, the old double coverage of, of gram negatives that when I came out of school was actually pretty common. And so that's a little bit different that goes on, that goes along there. Then we get into pressors and using uh, medications to keep the blood pressure up. This is obviously in patients who have received a standard 30 mil per kilogram bolus of, again, of a balanced crystalloid. And if their pressures are still below of a map of 65, vasopressors are usually indicated. They have not changed the fact that norepinephrine is now is still considered the, the first line drug in almost all cases of septic shock, not necessarily because it's better. I think it's always important to remember that we have almost no randomized controlled trial data suggesting that really any uh, vasopressor improves mortality in septic shock, but norepinephrine seems to be less arrhythmogenic than other uh, pressors. And so you tend to get less, especially atrial arrhythmias with it. And so I think that's one of the big reasons why norepinephrine you know, has been and will continue to be the first line vasopressor that you're going to see in these patients. They do talk in the text a lot about some of the other drugs that are out there. They do mention that when a patient has had an inadequate response to norepinephrine, that's usually when patients have a 0.2 mics per kilogram per minute of norepinephrine, that adding vasopressin instead of escalating the dose of norepinephrine 
heparin is suggested with moderate levels of evidence. This hasn't changed a lot from the, from the last guidelines. We have data now that several studies that suggested adding vasopressin at a fixed dose. Remember that we don't want to use high doses because that can actually trigger a mesenteric and coronary ischemia. That uh, higher doses of uh, the lower load, lower fixed doses of vasopressin can help get patients off of norepinephrine. Again, there's no evidence suggesting that any of these drugs improve mortality in septic shock, but basically just you know help improve MAPS and help people get off norepinephrine. Interestingly, and I, I, this surprised me, and I don't know if it surprised any of the other ICU clinicians listening, is, is that for patients who then are on norepinephrine and vasopressin and still having inadequate MAP levels, they suggested adding epinephrine, which is uh, not something that we do in my hospital a whole lot, partially because epinephrine, again, seems to be fairly arrhythmogenic. My own kind of thought on the issue is always, well, you know, you can only whip those receptors so much, right? So, I mean, you're already whipping them pretty hard with norepinephrine. You know, yes, epinephrine, it, you know, it, it, you might get some extra added adrenergic benefit, but that's really it. So, it surprised me, and from what I've seen online, it surprised a lot of other clinicians that epinephrine was kind of like kicked up to the to the front line, especially because now we have a, another pressor with another mechanism of action, which is angiotensin two, and works by a completely different mechanism. And one one would assume that they would have suggested adding that to norepinephrine and vasopressin instead of epinephrine. Reading the text of the guidelines, they just feel that the evidence that supports angiotensin II's use in septic shock is just very low. And, and so that's why they didn't give it a higher recommendation. But, but, but again, that surprised me. And, and from what I've read, it surprised some other uh, clinicians that they really didn't even hardly talk about angiotensin II in the guidelines at all. So kind of surprising there. They do note that in patients who you suspect concomitant cardiac dysfunction, and, and this can occur, especially with severe uh, septic shock where uh, sepsis actually causes damage to the heart or actually a stun myocardium where you actually see a decrease in cardiac output that you can certainly consider adding uh, dobutamine at that point, which can help, of course, uh, uh, support uh, contractility of the heart. My experience has always been that you have to be careful with dobutamine because you know, especially when you initially give it, you can actually see a, a fairly precipitous fall in blood pressure. So you've got to make sure that they can get through that first initial starting of dobutamine and support them with other blood pressures and medications is needed until the dobutamine really kicks in and stuff like that. And then uh, they do mention that albumin can be added in patients that have gotten a ton of fluid uh, and are on pressors to help, again, increase MAP. Uh, again, we have very little data on albumin as far as hard outcomes in, in septic shock. And as any pharmacy a manager will tell you, albumin is not cheap. So um, we don't use it a ton in my hospital, uh, but it is something to consider, especially as the patient becomes more and more fluid overloaded and you're having a difficult time getting control of their blood pressure and making sure their MAPs are above 65. We know from animal studies that, and even retrospective studies done in large databases that every hour that MAP is below 65 worsens the outcomes in patients. And so, you know, that it's, it's a target that we really should try to maintain and try and maintain above it for most of the time that patients are having septic shock and, and, and kind of going with that. So, so that's kind of the fluid, the antibiotic and the pressure recommendations. There has been a few small changes as far as mechanical ventilation. So unfortunately, most patients with uh, sepsis and septic shock often do require mechanical ventilation. That's partially because, again, we end up getting giving these patients a lot of fluids. So sometimes we can kind of put into pulmonary edema. They can have uh, cardiac dysfunction that can lead to respiratory failure as well. Uh, pneumonia is a, a common cause of, of septic shock. So, of course, they may, be, may have concomitant respiratory failure there. But of course, the thing that we're always really worried about with septic shock is it's one of the leading causes of ARDS. And so we do want to be mindful 
example of the fact that in patients who have septic shock, this overwhelming pro-inflammatory response that occurs in septic shock can in fact lead to ARDS. And so they do talk about the fact that they suggest the use of, of high flow nasal oxygen over non-invasive ventilation. There's been some evidence and certainly in the COVID crisis, we've used far more high flow nasal oxygen than I ever thought we'd ever see. Uh, we know now that it seems to work at least as good as non-invasive ventilation in the early stages of sepsis and, and respiratory failure. And of course, that prevents us from having to invasively mechanically ventilate patients, which is obviously a good thing. They don't change a lot of the guidelines once patients have ARDS. I know there's been some suggestion that the uh, the classic recommendation that was out even when I came out you know, almost 30 years ago, that a low tidal volume ventilation strategy of six mils per kilogram on the vent is the way to go and, and decreases barotrauma and seems to approve outcomes. And that was from the classic ARDSnet study that came out a long, long time ago. They still recommend that. There's been some more recent evidence suggesting that maybe some wiggle room there, especially in obese patients, but still, I think six mils per kilogram ideal body weight is really what we're kind of shooting for there. They do suggest higher PEEP than lower PEEP in, in patients with moderate to severe induced ARDS. And of course, something that we do pretty commonly now is trying to use recruitment or maneuvers to help basically recruit more of the lung so that it can be uh, used more and we can get people off of the ventilator as quickly as we possibly can. Uh, they also su suggest using intermittent neuromuscular blocking agents over continuous infusions. That's based on some, a couple studies that have come out in the last five or six years that have suggested uh, having people be more compliant with the ventilator uh, helps heal the lungs faster and helps get them off the vent faster. There was a pretty big study that unfortunately has not been uh, replicated that looked at, at boluses of cisatricurium in, in patients with ARDS and, and did find that it actually got people off the vent faster. In fact, even improved mortality. That's not been, it's not been replicated. And so some places are, are real adherence to that. We do some of that. We don't do a ton of that in, in my hospital, but, but we do do some of it. Certainly with the COVID crisis now, again, I've seen more people on uh, neuromuscular blocking agents than any time since before I started being a pharmacist almost 30 years ago, where back in the day, we would paralyze you. Even if you looked at us funny, because paralyzed patients are very easy to take care of. But uh, what we, of course, learned in the 1990s was that uh, when we finally took these people off of long-term neuromuscular blocking infusions, that they couldn't move because they were so weak and they had to be in the nursing home for a while as they got their strength back. So it doesn't seem like the boluses that they're using seems to dramatically increase the risk of what we, what used, what we used to call ICU myopathy. They do talk about steroids, probably what I'm going to wrap up discussing. The saga of, of corticosteroids and septic shock is, is a very interesting one. Someone should probably write a book on it. Since it's been known for a long time that steroids are a pro-inflammatory state, it was suggested, hey, well, you know, we, we should probably use steroids because that's an anti-inflammatory. But of course, it's also an immunosuppressive and high dose uh, steroids uh, were studied in septic shock in the 1980s. And it actually found, with, uh, found to have an increase in, in mortality. And so that whole concept was abandoned until the, the mid-1990s. Uh, uh, where several small studies suggested that in patients on pressors, adding low-dose corticosteroids, basically, you know, physiologic levels of steroids in the, in the range of two to 300 milligrams a day of, of hydrocortisone were reasonable to do. And a couple of these small studies suggested that, yes, you got people off pressors faster, but they didn't really do anything else. And so there was a real kind of schism in the world of critical care. You know, are steroids helpful? Are they not helpful? They also have side effects that cause hyperglycemia, stuff like that. So that was kind of back and forth 
month, I think, for a long time. Uh, the Corticus Diagnosis and Treatment Study came out then in the early 2000s, trying to kind of answer a couple of questions along those lines. We were for a long time checking a patient's adrenal status because the whole thought about giving steroids was that patients were not basically mounting an efficient adrenal response in patients who had septic shock. And so the first part of the Corticus study was the Corticus Diagnosis Study that actually didn't find any sort of correlation with patients' adrenal labs and their outcomes. And so that, you know, checking, you know, cosentropin stim tests and all that kind of got abandoned. And then the Corticus diagnosis or treatment study also randomized patients to, to hydrocortisone versus placebo and found, again, it got people off pressors, but that was really it. So again, that didn't really answer the final question of, you know, are steroids actually beneficial? There have been a couple more studies. And then finally, in, in the last couple of years, the adrenal study was published and that study was finally done in a big enough and, and a robust enough way to really find if there was an improvement in mortality in patients who got cortis- hydrocortisone and septic shock requiring pressors. And the answer is no, it didn't, but it got people off pressors. It got people off the vent faster. It got people out of the ICU faster. And more importantly, they did in that study really try to look at safety and they did not find any increased levels of infection or anything along those lines. They did find hyperglycemia was the biggest side effect. We have been using 200 milligrams of hydrocortisone pretty routinely in patients. And so that's the guidelines do now say that that, that they do suggest using IV corticosteroids. So I think they finally jumped on board with that uh, with a moderate level of evidence saying that they do suggest intravenous hydrocortisone at 100 milligrams a day in patients with septic shock if they're on pressors. Now, again, we don't immediately start them. We usually wait until they're on either a high level of pressor or they've been on pressors for several hours, and that's when we'll consider starting them. So uh, we've been doing that for a while, and, I, and I, I'm not sure this is going to answer once and for all the, the question. There's still, I think, a bit of a division in the world of critical care about are steroids actually helpful in septic shock in patients with knee pressors, but we've been doing that for a long time, and, and I suspect many other hospitals will start doing that as well. So again, a fascinating update on the surviving sepsis camping guidelines. They're free for the taking, of course, and we'll provide a, a link to the uh, guidelines in the show notes. Certainly, if you're an ICU clinician, um, if you already don't know about them, now you do, uh, you're definitely going to want to read them. And because again, this is really kind of what we base most of our treatment for sepsis on. I wish I could say that all these interventions seem to improve mortality and improve quality of life. Unfortunately, we just don't have a lot of data that's true, but as it stands, they really are the standard of care for treating sepsis. And if you're treating septic patients, this is what you need to go off of. So, so that's it for this week of Game Changers. And I will see you next week for another episode of Game Changers. Until then, remember, time flies. I don't know where it's going, but the most important day is today. Thank you for listening in. Claim your CE credit by clicking on the link in the show notes below and check out CE Impact's other education at ceimpact.com. We curate the most important information in pharmacy and medicine and then deliver it to you. Join today and connect your learning to practice.